0: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just 8 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too. So this is Stuff You Should Know, the wacky, strange history edition. Yet another one.
2: I love this one. Uh, we got a few people to thank out of the gate for this, if mm-hmm. I may. Sure. Uh, first of all, we want to thank listener uh, Brennan Wilson, who gave this idea to us through email. Okay. Da-da. I had never heard of it before. So Brennan sent this in and, and I did a quick search, as I always do when someone sends in something and thus it's like, oh, I do one on shoe soles. Uh, <laughs> but when it's something I hadn't heard of, I always look it up and I was like, oh man, this is a really good one, I didn't know about this. So big thanks to Brennan, uh, big thanks to Livia who put this one together and helped us out. And Livia actually said we should thank a couple of people in particular that um, sort of wrote the book, uh, well, literally and figuratively on Fordlandia. Um, Greg Grandin wrote a book called Fordlandia, Colin, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City, spoiler alert. And then there was a paper in the late 70s by a guy named John Gailey in the Journal of Inter-American Studies and World Affairs that also had a lot of good stuff. So thanks to everyone involved.
1: Here we go. Wow, that was a lot. (laughs) I was waiting for you to tell us who Greg Grandin said we should thank.
2: Yeah, right. Mom.
1: (laughs) So uh, we are talking about Fordlandia. We are talking about what you could call Ford's Folly. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of um, strip it bare right out of the gate, it was Henry Ford's misadventure down in the Amazon, where he tried to build a model utopian society based on rural midwestern America.
2: <laughs> right in the Amazon.
1: In the Amazon. That's a big. That's a big catch right there because he didn't try to do it in Omaha, or Topeka. He chose the Amazon over mm-hmm. Topeka, and I think that says a lot about Topeka. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we love our Kansans. Mm-hmm. I
2: hope they know that. Sure. All but one. All but one. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. So we should talk a little bit about uh, the sort of weirdo that was Henry Ford. Uh, maybe we should do a whole one, a whole ep on him one day. I, I didn't know a ton about the guy. Mm. He uh, did a lot of great stuff, was also not great in a lot of ways. That's such um, a
1: recurring theme. I
2: know. Uh, In 1903 is where the Ford Motor Company was born in Dearborn, Michigan. And thanks to the Model T, uh, it changed America. It was a car that was uh, available, um, more available than any car had ever been to, like, regular Americans. Mm -hmm. He paid his workers a living wage, which at the time was $5 a day. And he also had a lot of strings attached to that good wage and those good jobs um, along the lines of like, hey, I know we're a car company, but let's have a sociology department in our company where we send out hundreds of uh, investigators around Dearborn into the homes of my employees mm-hmm. to make sure that the the kids are going to school and everything is tidy, uh, the wife isn't working, and that people aren't drinking booze.
1: Yeah, it was the Ford Motor Company equivalent of the Gestapo, the secret police, Yeah, who who they weren't coming to like your company-owned house that you lived in on the Ford Motor Company campus. Right. This is your house in Michigan, and these mm-hmm. people felt totally fine coming by and checking on your family to make sure that you were living up to Henry Ford's personal standards of old-timey, squeaky-clean Americanness.
2: Yeah, but at the same time, he would also, uh, like I said, pay them a good wage. He would um, give them great health care He would uh, he would help citizenship um, along if he had uh, immigrants working for them. He would help them with their applications, help them get home loans. Mm -hmm. So it was one of those things where he was like, I feel like I'm paying you well and I'm doing a lot of good for you and your family. And that gives me the right uh, as really just your uber boss to dictate how you should live your life as well.
1: It's insane. It is. He had a he was a anti-Semite. It's pretty well trod that. Hitler um, was at least in part inspired by the writings, the anti-Semite, anti-Semitic writings of Henry Ford. Yeah. He was a huge fan of square dancing. You could call it an obsession, essentially. uh,
2: Yeah, it's very, very weird.
1: He met his wife at a square dance, and apparently he thought that that was the end-all be-all of of rural American life, that that was a perfect pastime, a perfect symbol— Everybody should be into square dancing. I mean, nothing
2: wrong with square dancing. I'm not knocking square dancing, just to be clear.
1: Oh, okay, good. I'm glad you said that because I was about to. He was also <laughs> big time into soy. Like, he apparently, some of the early Model Ts, um, their knobs and stuff were made out of basically a proto soy plastic. He ate soy as much as he could. He seemed to um, have kind of fallen in the footsteps of the Kellogg brothers a little bit. I get the yeah, impression. Yeah, for sure. He was that kind of old-timey cook. Ve- vegetarian kook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but he also had some—his business acumen was just insane. Like, he wasn't just a businessman. He was an industrialist. This guy yeah. was a titan of industry because he made the industry himself, essentially. And what he was responsible for, in part, was the assembly line, but also— might not have come up with the concept, but he really adopted something called vertical integration.
2: Yeah, uh, that's the idea, let's say let's say you're building cars and you're like, oh, well, I wanna make my own tires instead of buying them from Firestone. So I'm gonna start making my tires, um, and uh, well, I want my own rubber then to make these tires. Mm-hmm. Like why pay somebody for rubber if uh, I'm gonna be making all these tires for myself in these cars? And so that's what inspired the idea of Ford Landy is like, let's go where the rubber is and buy up land and start, you know milking these rubber trees. you don't milk rubber trees probably.
1: Mm-hmm. You um, milk, you tap them. Tap them, that's right.
2: And tap these rubber trees. And then uh, basically, what you're trying to do is control control the entire supply chain by owning it. Yeah, from, the, from the bottom up.
1: Right, Which means like buying coal mines to, um, to fuel, the the vulcanization process of hardening rubber, buying up railroads to deliver the coal to the factories, like that, yeah. like owning every aspect of what you need to produce your final product. That was what he was into, that vertical integration. And like you said, I mean, that is why he ended up in Brazil.
2: Yeah. Do you know what kind of like titan of industry you have to be for someone to come in and say, I tell you what's killing us right now, are these shipping costs on the railroads. And he's like, well, let's buy the railroad then.
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, and most people might even think about it, but you can't actually do it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So this idea, though, of um, building, and as you'll see, it was much more than let's go to the Amazon and buy some land and grow rubber. Mm -hmm. It was, for him, it seems like even more so, like, let's go down there and build this utopian society that I dream of where people square dance and no one drinks and curses and stuff like that. Uh, but this wasn't a brand new thing for him. In 1921, he tried to do a similar thing in northern Alabama uh, near Muscle Shoals on a 75-mile stretch of, uh, of land mm-hmm. where uh, there were some sort of abandoned facilities. There were two nitrate facilities from World War One, and there was a, uh, the construction, and well, partial construction of the Wilson Dam. And he said, you know what? Let's move there. Let's restart those projects and get people working and kind of— found a new, like, society there, basically, where no one was living.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He offered $5 bucks to lease the dam, I guess, to the government, and a lot of people in the government weren't down with it, and it eventually just kind of fell apart.
1: Well, supposedly, it was just one senator from Alabama who, th- oh, who really? opposed it. Yeah, and he was Tiny powerful Tubber enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a tradition, apparently. <laughs> wow. um, this senator got death threats from people in Alabama, not just in the Muscle Shoals area, but... Like, all over Alabama, they had mobilized to start feeding this million-person million workforce that Henry yeah. Ford was going to employ. And like, like they changed everything they were doing and started to ramp up production in, in anticipation of this. And this one senator got in the way and said, nope, uh, this wow. guy's getting too sweet a deal, and he killed it. And he killed it enough that Henry Ford was like, fine, I'll just go somewhere else. And the guy started getting death threats. So apparently, he made a visit to Muscle Shoals and had to have armed bodyguards with him wow. because he was in that much in danger. That many people were that mad at him. Holy cow! Mm-hmm. All right,
2: so we've covered Ford. He was a strange man. He was an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. He was a titan of industry.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And now we got to cover the rubber part of this—not uh, where the rubber meets the road, but where the rubber meets the podcast. Um. Mm. <laughs> Oh, man, that was the saddest little grunty groan I've ever heard out of you. (laughs) It was involuntary. I'm sorry. I know. You couldn't even, I could tell you couldn't even help it. (laughs) Oh, boy. Like, there's no way that you're going to die before me. But if you happen to, Uh I feel like I would just, and I know that you're not going to have an open casket funeral either, but let's say you did. Okay. I feel like I would go and lean over your body and just tell you how great it was working with you all those years, and you would make that same sound.
1: (laughs) Why do you say I'm not going to have an open casket funeral? Do you know something I don't? No, I thought you were going to like either be shot out of a cannon or cremated and scattered or sky burial or something. Oh, no, that's all. That's so old. No, no I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but <laughs> okay. I could have a, a open casket. I all can right. be cremated after everybody's like, hey, good Pay job, Josh. See you later. Good to meet right. you. I don't know who you are, but way to go. <laughs> all right. I that's bother. what I expect people to say in my view. I hope that happens what day. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, So, the world is being industrialized in the uh, early 20th century, in the 19th century. Rubber became a very big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rubber is a product of South America uh, originally. And um, the Amazon region had a lot of rubber trees down there. So, they were like the dominant player. And rubber trees down there grew just sort of where they wanted to grow. It wasn't like a a plantation crop or something like that. Uh, But it really grew. And so... Along the Amazon, they were building little cities and stuff to support that industry for many, many years.
1: Yeah, they put a lot of effort into, like, supporting this rubber trade. And Brazil was, like, the, basically the only player on the market. That's where the rubber trees were. And if you wanted rubber, that's where you had to go because we didn't have synthetic rubber yet. Yeah. So somebody, some Brit, I don't remember. We've talked about it before. Yeah. Don't remember what episode. Maybe we did one on rubber. I'm not sure. Uh-uh. But think so. a Brit said, hey, you know, Sri Lanka has a very similar um, climate to the Amazon. Maybe those rubber trees will grow there. And not only do the rubber trees grow there, the rubber trees had no natural um, pests or... Um, uh,
2: enemies? Sure. We'll just predators? Say enemies. Parasites?
1: Yeah, all of those things. It had none of them, I should say. Um, so those things flourished like crazy in Sri Lanka and other parts of, um, I guess, Central Southeast Asia. That's right. Not Central Which, Asia.
2: Yeah, and that, that really put a dent in uh, the rubber economy in Brazil, uh, kind of collapsed it basically. And uh, following that in 1922, the Stevenson plan in Britain said, basically said, hey, if you're a, a French planter or a British planter in one of our Asian colonies, you can restrict the supply of rubber you can uh, create a false market basically to raise the rubber prices all around the world. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, America was going, We're being squeezed here by this Stevenson plan. Right. So at the time, Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, Hobolt Hoover, <laughs> steps up and says, All right, we got to get some rubber going on our own now and develop our supply chain. So um, go do it. In 1924, he sent a uh, technical mission down to Brazil to look again, once again in the Amazon and see mm-hmm. if they can bring the Amazon back and make it a player again. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what they tried to do. They, they were, it was basically um, like which companies would go there and which companies would go elsewhere. I think Goodyear ended up going somewhere else, Firestone ended up going somewhere else. They went to Liberia, mm-hmm. uh, Goodyear went to uh, the Philippines and Sumatra. But Ford was still like, I want to make my own tires. I don't want to buy from those guys. Mm-hmm. So there's like, why don't we do it?
1: Yeah, he also, so it, I get the impression after researching this that uh, getting rubber to make his own tires was almost a pretext for him. That he, that's what he needed to tell people. That's what he needed to spend Ford Motor Company money on. But what he really wanted to do was to basically tame the Amazon To, to, I'm making scare quotes all over the place here, civilize the people of the Amazon and basically turn them into rural Midwestern Americans (laughs) with square dancing on their mind all the time, right? I know. So that's really what he wanted to do. He didn't even care if he made money. He didn't care if he lost tons of money. He wanted to make this, this utopian society. And the Amazon was as great a place as any because... It was such a challenge. And also, if you went to Sumatra or he went to the Philippines, like these, these it was a different place. Like there, yeah. there were also other colonial powers there. The Amazon was right because everybody went somewhere else. And yeah. Ford said, I'm going there.
2: Yeah. And they said, we would like you to come here because Henry Ford was, like you said, he was a business magnet. He was a, a worldwide uh, well-known name, basically a celebrity all around the world. And in Brazil, they were like, listen, we we need someone like Henry Ford here Mm -hmm. to kind of put us back on the map rubber wise. And so they they basically said, hey, listen, we'll give you land if you come over here and and start your rubber business here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what they did in 1927. They got the Ford Motor uh, Company, got a gift of two and a half million acres Mm. uh, alongside the uh, Tapajos River, and he said, here's the deal, uh, made a deal with the government there. Um, after 12 years, like a, give yourself a dozen years to get going. Mm-hmm. And then you can start paying Brazil 7% and then 2% to the local governments. I don't know why they capped it at 9%. You know, that was 10 and Ford talked him down like a percentage point or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably.
2: Uh, they got some kickbacks, about 125 grand in kickbacks to make it happen between people who sort of negotiated the deal, which really made Ford mad because... As a, you know, a guy who loves square dancing doesn't like kickbacks. You know what I'm saying?
1: No. And 125 grand in kickbacks in 1927 is $2.17 million today. a lot of money. Yeah. 1.709 million pounds and 1.971 million euros.
2: Yeah. Which he might've thought, that's very thorough.
1: Well, you called me out for not having the Euro (laughs) conversion before. So I made sure I was prepared today.
2: Yeah, he might have been a little rankled because he might have thought he could have paid less for two and a half million acres there.
1: I I don't know. I think it was probably the not, moral part of it. Yeah, you're you not. hit it on the head. He was a square dancer. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, but that was just par for the course, apparently. I, yeah. I think it's changed dramatically since then.
2: Yeah. Uh, but what you were saying about his, like, his desire was more to make that thing. There's a quote where he said, his was his desire was not to make money but to to develop that wonderful and fertile land.
1: Yes. The very quote I was searching for while I was making that point, but couldn't find. Oh, okay. So thank you. Because that's yeah, he that's what he wanted to do. But as far as Ford Motor Company is concerned, like they're going down there to start up a rubber plantation to make their own rubber to make their own tires, part of the vertical integration plan. And so um there were there were not not everybody was on board with this. Yeah, because anybody who knew anything about the rubber market said, "Hey, that Stevenson plan that the Brits enacted in 1922, they shot themselves in the foot. They yeah. they kept from exporting rubber to try to artificially influence prices, but the Dutch didn't go along with it, and they undercut the Brits, and now the Dutch control most of the American market, and they're selling it." Perfectly reasonable prices. We don't actually need to set up our own rubber plantations. And they said, Ford said, no, we're going down to the Amazon. And he made it happen.
2: He did. Uh, August 1928, he started shipping stuff down to Brazil. Uh, The problem initially, and boy, there were a lot of problems, but let's (laughs) call this problem number one. Okay. Uh, They chose a site uh, high up in elevation because they didn't want to be involved in flooding, which sort of makes sense. Sure. But it was so far inland that these steamer ships pulling these barges, taking all these supplies to literally build a city, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. They, they couldn't get down these, these shallow rivers. So uh, it took forever. It took like over, like, well, not over a year, but, you know, nine to 10 months for the supplies to finally get there. So the timeline from the beginning was just super slow.
1: Yes. Uh, they finally did get there in, in early 1929, and the, the steamer captain who um, well was the captain of the steamership that pulled the barge of supplies down there initially was a Danish man named Einard Oxholm. And he is a really great example of Ford and Ford Motor Company's idea that if you are competent at mm-hmm. one thing, yeah. you can be competent at anything. I saw it described as a basically a corporate-wide arrogant optimism
2: mm, interesting.
1: that you could just get in there and get things done if you were a smart yeah. person and you applied scientific principles you could do anything so he appointed Einard Oxholm as the manager of this plantation and settlement This was the, the, ship steam- captain. Yeah, the steamship captain is now running the entire show down there now
2: yeah he had no experience at all in anything like this but like you said Ford thought he's a good guy I like the cut of his jib have you seen him have you seen him square dance <laughs> right exactly Let's get this guy some cloggy shoes or <laughs> what, I don't even know what those are called. We, sh- we got to do one on square dancing.
1: Clog- on yeah, they're called clogs, I think. Okay. They're going to be so mad at us. Who, the square dancers? Yeah. I don't know, man. Maybe we'll find out it's actually super interesting and cool. No, no, no. We'll
2: do a podcast on it. But I'm just saying we're going to get emails. But the angriest email you're going to get from a square dancer is maybe, how dare you?
1: <laughs> right.
2: And that's where it's capped.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In all caps. <laughs>
2: Uh, so Oxholm hired a bunch of locals, obviously. They cleared out the jungle. They started setting up their buildings. Uh, the initial name of the community was Boa Vista. Uh, as you can tell by the name of the title, it was eventually renamed Fordlandia. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: this would be a great movie. I don't know why this hasn't been a movie yet. It's surprising. I'd say that a lot, but I think in this case it would pre- be pretty good.
1: It'd be in like the, the, um, the spirit of uh, Road to Wellville.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Um, so they're down there <laughs> working these locals uh, literally to death at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, disease was killing a lot of them. Um, a lot of these, uh, and as we'll see, there a lot of these uh, workers would revolt, uh, given the working conditions for numerous reasons that we'll we'll hit on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were there were a number of riots over the the period of time that they tried to get Fordlandia up and off the ground. And you know things were going very slow. So Ford was like, you know what? We're tearing down this forest. Why don't we at least sell this wood and we can make a little scratch? Uh, but no one wanted it. So there was no market for the wood. So that was another thing that kind of went down the tubes.
1: Mm-hmm. What else? Oh, the, everything else, basically. Um, they, they, I don't understand why. If you believe in applying scientific principles and all that to get uh, something done, they didn't hire an uh, agronomist. Yeah. Agronomist. Agronomists, maybe? I don't know. I think I finally hit upon. it. They didn't hire anybody who had any experience with plants. They hired Ford Motor Company executives who had been working in Dearborn, Michigan, to go down and make this thing happen. Like, again, arrogant optimism that they, these guys could do this, even though they knew nothing about plants and rubber plants. And that would just immediately start to come back and bite them.
2: Yeah. Uh, they did things like, oh, I don't know, uh, plant trees at the wrong time, plant trees in the wrong places. Um, nothing they did seem to work, uh, as far as the, the botany angle goes and the biology angle goes, uh, the trees, like I said earlier, the rubber trees are naturally grow through the Amazon. Mm-hmm. But he was like, he wanted to set up like the plantation style thing where he just had these huge plots of rubber trees as a monoculture, which they successfully did in Asia where they didn't have those enemies. Right. Like you were talking about those pests. So it flourished there, but in South America. Uh, As Livia puts it, it was like an all-you-can-eat buffet for these pests. That was bad enough. Then at one point they said, oh, here's what we'll do. Well, let's introduce these ants, these salva ants, because they eat the caterpillars that are killing our rubber trees. Mm -hmm. So they introduce all these ants, and the ants were like, you know what tastes better than caterpillar? Rubber trees. (laughs) So they literally introduced a new pest on top of all that.
1: Exactly. They they just, like, wave at, like, the caterpillars. They walk past while they were both eating the rubber tree.
2: And they said, you know what tastes better than rubber trees? Clogging shoes.
1: <laughs> you know what tastes better than clogging shoes? Salva what? ants.
2: <laughs> Wait, clogging is different than square dancing. Someone's going to call us out on that.
1: That's fine. It doesn't matter. The point is that salva ants are one of the few species of insects that are um, are prepared and served as food because they're tasty. Not for their protein kind oh. of, because their taste.
2: See, I get your joke now. Yeah. They I taste... thought you were just being cheeky.
1: No, no, It's true. They, t- it, I was, but it was also true.
2: Yeah, cheeky with a point, which is sort of your motto. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's an album name right there. Right. <laughs> so, um,
2: it's a squeeze album, I think.
1: They, uh, that's a great, great one. Um, the uh, oh yeah, salva ants tasting. Mm-hmm. They taste like um, ginger, lemongrass, mm-hmm. and cardamom, and wow. you can serve them on raw pineapple, and they taste amazing. Apparently, it really pops. We have to try one on this. I don't know if the any of the executives or workers in Fordlandia knew this. I'm guessing the right. workers probably did, and I wonder how many ants were eaten. Right. Just because they were so tasty, but Not either enough. way, it didn't work to get rid of the caterpillars, and that's just one of just so many examples of them just trying something that seems like it would work, but only ending up demonstrating their complete and total ignorance of this.
2: Yeah, exactly. So things are going well uh, in September of 29. Uh, Ford sent down a troubleshooter to get a report, and like, what's going on down there, really? And he came back and said, there's a, quote, complete lack of organization. Uh, the minister of agriculture in Brazil thinks Henry Ford is crazy. And, quote, at present, it's like dropping money into a sewer. The end.
1: So things are not going well, Chuck. Um, do you want to take a break and come back and talk about how things continue to not go well? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, things are not going very well for the Ford Motor Company down in Brazil. But just like with his workers in Michigan, Ford did fulfill his promises to the workers in the Amazon in Brazil Mm -hmm. um, that he would take care of them in exchange for them trying to act like rural Midwesterners, pretend to like square dancing. (laughs) So, they built hospitals. They built a really great, cutting edge hospital right there in the middle of the Amazon. They erected a water tower which was the highest structure, the tallest structure in the Amazon for quite a while. Um, they installed swimming pools and golf courses. Um, there were generators that produce electricity. There were sawmills. Like, they created the city. And they also, in, like, added prefab houses for the workers to live in. The thing is, is, like, all this stuff was delivered to them, was given to the, to the workers in exchange for their labor. But also they were paid something like 35 cents a day. Yeah. Um, which is better than the slave labor they were uh, engaged in before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is, I think the Ford Motor executives were just expected the the Brazilians to say, oh, thank you for, for giving us running water even. We'll do anything you want. And right. they found over time, as we'll see time and time again, that no, the, the people of the Amazon have a, a tremendous amount of pride and they're not willing to just kind of roll over for somebody like Henry Ford or his incompetent boobs from Dearborn.
2: Yeah, but it was also it's also we should point out that it wasn't it was segregated still. Right. Um, like the Via Americana, which was the the neighborhood with the swimming pool and the golf course and the tennis courts and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That was for the U.S. staff and their families. They did have running water. The Brazilian workers, I think, they could use the pool and stuff like that. But they had, um, their accommodations weren't as good. They had well water, um, they had to uh, live in these. And this was again, just thinking you can just transplant a Midwestern American city and drop it in Brazil. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work because they had their homes traditionally built off the ground with thatch roofs to keep it cool. Henry Ford built uh, iron roofed square duplexes mm-hmm. that were steaming hot. Um, said, here, eat this food that we eat. Eat this whole wheat bread and eat this canned fruit. And they were getting, like, stomach aches and they were getting sick because you can't just go in and radically change uh, a culture's diet overnight either.
1: the microbiome does not like that. No. So they— They
2: They had square dances, though. They 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 really did. They
1: did have square dances. Like, uh, not only that, they also had um, readings of Walt Whitman and other American poets— that were pre-industrial translated into Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, no, 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 you can't drink, just like our workers in Dearborn. They said, no, 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 we're not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And so that one didn't stick. But apparently there was square dancing, like you said. Um, the 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 problems, though, were not so much like the house is being too hot or the square dancing being just never-ending. It was things like really instituting... American ideas like an eight-hour, 10-hour, probably 10- or 12-hour workday among the workers, and that's not how they worked before. Um, They they would take time off during the hottest part of the day, traditionally. Um, When it was the rainy season, they would work less. When it was drier season, they would work more. This is not what Ford expected them to do. So there were cultural clashes, like right out of the gate, and rather than— even ask what the what the problem was with the, the Brazilians, the people of the Amazon, the Ford Motor executives just expected them to fall into line and to acquiesce and just do what Ford was telling them to do.
2: Yeah, and then just little things like the uh many of the Brazilians would sleep in hammocks um every night and all of a sudden they were in beds, which isn't the same. Uh you would think, oh you get a bed instead of a hammock, but if you're if you're not used to it, that's like throwing us in a hammock. Although some people sleep great in hammocks, I don't sure. sleep good in a hammock. Uh, but they—I think there was an interview in 1994 in the South Florida Sun Sentinel with a doctor from that hospital, Dr. Emmerich. Oh boy,
1: I'm so glad uh, you tried.
2: I'm going to say uh, z- Zilagyi. Okay. Jeez, when a word when a name starts with S Z, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Right out of the gate, for sure. Uh, but there was a you know a 1994 interview with him. He ran the hospital for like three years, and he was like, "Listen, we would put them in these hospital beds. They're used to hammocks, and we would come back, and they had like cut the mattresses open and dug holes in the center, mm-hmm. so they could have that sort of hammocky curve in their beds. Yeah, uh, the, they would liked midwives to, to deliver their babies, and he even admitted we withheld food from these pregnant women and. Until they agreed to go to a hospital and have a nurse do it.
1: Right. So so in Ford's mind, like, we're giving you guys cutting-edge hospital equipment and, and medical care, but you have to accept it exactly the way that we're presenting it. Right. And not just the medical care, but everything. Just the very existence as a worker in Fordlandia, you had to accept it as it was being presented. There was no adapting to local um, traditions, local yeah. climate, local... Um, anything yeah it, it was so that it, anytime somebody's taking something from somewhere else and is rigidly refusing to adapt it to this new environment, mm-hmm. that thing is going to fail. I can't yeah. think of a single project that has succeeded in that in that respect. Maybe when we start living in space mm-hmm. like on the moon or something like that, that would qualify maybe the ISS qualifies. In that sense, a submarine that people live on that would qualify too. Right. There's all sorts of ones that actually qualify. But in Let's this case, on land
2: on on planet Earth.
1: Okay. In this case it did not work because they were too rigid and they would not adapt to yeah. local conditions.
2: Yeah, it was a, it was uh, it was a man crazed with an idea and that's never that never leads to success it seems like right. because they're usually like you said rigid and uh, nonconforming and that's just no way to run an operation.
1: Right, exactly.
2: Uh, So, speaking of not running an operation, uh, Oxholm left uh, in 1930. He was the original ship captain and then manager of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, He told the Detroit News, it was the hardest proposition I ever tackled in my life. Uh, A couple of other guys cycled through pretty quickly in that position, and uh, things started getting more and more heated in these sort of, uh, you know, I talked about the riots that broke out. They became more frequent and more serious.
1: Yeah, one of the problems was these the executives didn't even speak Portuguese. They would just sit there and like boss around the the, the um, Brazilian workers in English, yeah, and expect them to do what they were saying and expect them to understand what they were saying. Um, one of the things that really that's there's a couple of chapters of Ford Landy, and the thing that ended the first chapter was um, strangely a transition from table um, table service yeah. cafeteria um, seating right, where you would just sit at a table and somebody would come over and bring you food to a cafeteria line type of um, right. food service, right? And, like go stand in the hot sun for your food. Exactly, and they did not like that. They ended up getting very hot and getting very angry and very hungry. Hangry, you could even say. Hot and hangry mm-hmm. in the Amazon is not a good combination. Right. So tensions were already high among the workers just from having to, to, to do this now. Um, and apparently a... Uh, a a man named Manuel Ca- Caetano de Jesus, who was a brick mason at Fordlandia, uh, said something to Kaj Ostenfeld, who was the Ford supervisor at Fordlandia, about the new cafeteria plan. And Ostenfeld just basically laughed in De Jesus's face. Right. And not only did that upset De Jesus, it upset, it upset his coworkers who were around too. And in very short order, they started rioting.
2: Yeah. They were like, guess what? We have machetes. Uh, they wrecked the cafeteria. They wrecked the generators. They wrecked a lot of the equipment and the buildings, the residential buildings. Mm-hmm. And this is the best part. And I love that Livia dug this out. They, sort of like a, an office space with that copier, they put a real hurtin' on those time clocks Yeah. that they were punching every day.
1: And they ended up actually occupying Fordlandia for three days because apparently the Ford executives had fast boats hidden along the river for just such an emergency, and they fled. So, the workers took over Fordlandia and occupied it, and um, the Ford Motor Company's executives were friends with um, Juan Tripe, or Tripe, who was the president of Pan Am, who said, sure, we'll let you charter a few of our jets and get some of the Brazilian military in there to suppress this, this rebellion, and they did. After three days, the workers gave up peacefully and left. They left because they were fired Apparently yeah. Ford paid them up to December twenty second, which was the beginning of the rioting day. And mm-hmm. they were fired on Christmas Day, I believe. And yeah. that that was the end of the first chapter. Ford Landia just kind of fell into disuse momentarily, but in very short order, Ford sent another guy. And this guy was the best manager Ford Landia ever saw. His name was Archibald Johnston. He was a Scotsman.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He came in he said, we need roads. We need paved roads. We need to connect all this stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: the we, He built more houses. Uh, he built a movie theater. He built that dance hall because he had to have the square dancing. Yeah, uh, Basically, just kind of improvement en masse to everything, the hospitals, the schools, the living conditions and everything. Uh, he said, hey, worker, um, set up a garden. But you should also still adopt this diet and grow the things that Henry Ford says you should eat and grow.
1: Right. But the thing about Johnston, the workers called him the white tiger because he was he got there and he was like, okay, I I can make this work. And he did. He adapted to the local situation. He was um, he was willing to um, understand where the Brazilians were coming from, where the workers Mm -hmm. were coming from. He was less rigid uh, as far as rural Midwestern. Expectations were concerned, right. and he was a success as a result. Um, and I think he showed up in 1931, I believe, is when he took over, and he was there for several years. And mm-hmm. under his um, his overseas ship, overseer ship, yeah, his oversight, uh, his watch. Uh, finally, finally, Ford hires a plant person, not even right. a, pl- not even like a botanist. It was a plant pathologist. Who is good with figuring out what things that are plaguing plants, but they're not necessarily good at getting plantations going. But they hired at least somebody who knew what they were talking about with plants named James Weir.
2: Yeah. He hired someone who knew plant. (laughs) Right. That was as basic as it got. Yeah. James Weir, like he said, and, you know, and this was because, you know, they had the city going and they were building this town but there was also the rubber operation that we kind of, you know, forget about at times in this crazy story. Mm-hmm. But they were like, maybe we should actually start, you know, getting the the rubber growing. So he Weir came in and he tried some new methods. Uh, didn't work out too well. And he said, you know what, we need to do really. This is garbage area now because of everything that we've done to it. Uh, what we really need is to start over uh, in an area close by. So in 1934. Um, Henry Ford managed to work out a land swap uh, of a parcel about 80 miles downstream where they built a new plantation called uh, Belterra. And this actually produced some rubber. They brought in uh, some of those successful trees from Asia and they grew, uh, I believe, uh, they capped out at about 2,500 employees compared to Fordlandia's four or 500. Mm -hmm. So things were going better, but they still... I think at their max in 1942, they produced 750 tons of latex, which sounds like a lot, but apparently that was just like a drop in the bucket of what Ford needed for their tire. So even though it was more successful, it still didn't satisfy what they wanted or what they needed from the beginning.
1: And to kind of add insult to injury to all the people who, you know, donated blood, sweat, and tears, and sometimes their lives to to getting Ford's rubber produced— Ford gave up on the idea of making it his own tires the same year they started um, getting rubber from the rubber trees down in Brazil. That's right. So um, Ford, he has – I don't have the impression that he ever made it down there. I
2: think. Oh, like in person? Yeah.
1: I don't believe he oh, ever did. Um, but he, he kind of ended up getting a little distracted from his company. He um, set up a museum of like a rural – like a, an ode to rural pre-industrial American life that you can still go to today, it's called Greenfields. It's in Dearborn. Um, he just got he was he got less interested in the company, and so his son became president. I think all the way back in nineteen nineteen, Edsel Ford, but to Henry Ford, his son was just a figurehead. Apparently, at mm-hmm. one executive board meeting, Edsel Ford said that he was in favor of adding hydraulic brakes to the cars. And Henry Ford jumped to his feet and said, Edsel, you shut up. In Just th- stayed in the corner. At the board meeting. Yeah, and he's the president of Ford. So he oh, had boy. to put up with a lot. But he was like, we need to sell this. As early as 1935, he was looking for buyers. The problem is, is everybody knew the kind of problems Ford was having down in, in Brazil. And yeah, no one wanted no it. No one wanted it.
2: Yeah, I don't blame him. Uh, 1943 is when Edsel died. Uh, there was a bit of a power struggle, but eventually Henry Ford II, who was Henry's grandson, came on board in 1945 as president mm-hmm. and kind of started cleaning house in the company. And any operation in the company that wasn't doing well uh, went away and this and Ford Landia was kind of the tops on the list basically. Mm-hmm. and they managed to sell it back to the Brazilian government. <laughs> Right. After all those years.
1: At at a loss with all the the land and all the improvements. Brazilian government should, sure, why not? We'll take it back. Exactly. Um, The Brazilians turned it into a cattle ranch, which is is a bit ironic because um, Henry Ford was famous for hating cows. I don't know if we touched upon that at the very outset when we were talking about how weird he is, but he hated cows. He didn't like horses either, but he really hated cows. And that makes Edsel Ford's death even more ironic, too, because Edsel Ford got ulcers and his father insisted that he drink some unpasteurized milk from one of Henry Mm. Ford's farms. And the bugs in the milk killed Edsel in 1943. Wow. Yeah. His own father bossing him around, making him drink unpasteurized milk from a cow that he didn't even like, killed his son. That's how Edsel went.
2: But he hated cows before that, right?
1: Yes. he, He grew up on a farm. So as much as he idealized rural life he couldn't stand farm animals
2: you know what i love square
1: dancing exactly you know what i hate cows yeah <laughs> they ate the hay that he used to square dance on and so he didn't like them
2: i'm looking at a picture of henry ford now and i'm trying to think of who would play him today sam
1: rockwell sam rockwell oh. would play everybody
2: hey that that wouldn't be too bad you'd have to age him up a little bit but that that's not a bad idea, actually.
1: You know what movie I keep going back to that I just I can watch it almost any time I, I get the, the notion? Um, I am the pretty thing that lives in the house. That Osgood Perkins movie. Oh, I didn't see that. I've definitely told you about it multiple times. But you need to put it toward the top of your list.
2: Well well, you told me about the devil's uh his other movie. What was it about the girls in the Oh the
1: Black Coat's daughter.
2: Yeah, Black Coat's daughter. You still
1: haven't seen that either?
2: No, no, no! I saw it and I didn't like it, and you were uh, mad at me uh, because of that for like a year. You
1: <laughs> you, you. Well, I, well, the good thing about me is I forget very quickly, right. too, so I'm not mad at you anymore. No, this is this is much much different than the Black Coats Daughter. Much different. I'll oh, we'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's it's a it's a cozy, cozy, haunted house story.
2: Is Sam Rockwell in it?
1: No, I was just thinking about that movie.
2: <laughs> Gary Oldman could play him too. He he does that uh, aged up thing chameleon thing pretty well what
1: about Harrison Ford they have to age him down
2: love Harrison Ford don't
1: like de-aging I thought they did Uh, a good job from the trailers
2: did you see Oppenheimer
1: yet no I haven't yet
2: Gary Oldman pops up in that yeah I heard
1: a lot of people do have you seen Barbie going tonight it's great capital G do not tell me anything else about it but I heard it already hit a billion dollars
2: Well, it's capital G, great, and it's about uh, Barbie.
1: Okay. Don't tell me anything else, though, please.
2: (laughs) You know who plays Barbie? Shh. Yes. You know what I mean? You know, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, of course. Why are you telling me more stuff about Barbie, though, when I've very clearly asked you not to? I just
2: wondered if, like, saying things like it's about Barbie was too much.
1: Yes, it is. That's what I'm saying. I like to go in totally fresh, like George Costanza.
2: It's called Barbie, but it's about Henry Ford. <laughs> awesome. And, and you know who plays Henry Ford? Who's Sam Rockwell?
1: Mar- Margot Robbie. Oh, very nice.
2: It's quite a transformation. Yeah,
1: that was all very unexpected.
2: Uh, all right, well, let's wind this up. So uh, rubber, synthetic rubber comes along.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Everything changes. The rubber tree is not as useful as it was before. It goes
1: from hero to zero.
2: That's right, pretty quickly. And Fordlandia, though, parts of Fordlandia are still there. It is now what's known as sort of, well, I won't see abandoned city because mm. there were a few hundred people that lived there for a few decades. Uh, but in 2016, uh, there was uh, a writer for The Guardian who went down there to report. And there are now like several thousand people who have now moved in to Fordlandia and live there working with uh, gypsum right?
1: Yeah. There's a uh, really high quality gypsum deposits discovered shortly after Ford left. And so these people like support the miners or mine themselves. So yeah, if, if you like to, to the people of America who know this story, it's like, oh, Ford Landy and Belterra, are these abandoned failed, you know, cities that Ford tried. If you ask people in Brazil, it's like, no, Belterra and Ford Landy are, are cities in Para state in Brazil. Like they're, They've been inhabited this entire time, and they still are. So, they they were abandoned by Ford, but not Brazil.
2: Yeah. but And you can look up pictures today of Fordlandia. There are still warehouses. That water tower, I think, is still standing, right? Yes.
1: I think it might and, still be uh, operating.
2: Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it is definitely interesting to see sort of the remnants of this place that it, it's—this has got to be a movie one day. I'm telling you, just be. put Margot Roby in it, and you're golden.
1: Okay. Uh, you got anything else? I, I don't think I have anything else, sir. I don't either, Chuck. Um Well, since Chuck mentioned Margot Roby again, he unlocked listener mail.
2: That's right. But instead of uh, listener mail, we would love to talk very briefly about our kids book that is now available for purchase. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, so what we did with Macmillan Publishing is, is we took our book for adults—not like it was triple X or anything—and <laughs> we we kidified it. You know, we took out some of the stuff, some of the chapters that shouldn't be there. We added some stuff. Uh, we rewrote some things to make it a little more kid friendly. Mm-hmm. And what we ended up was was what I think is a great
1: kids book—a Dynamo book for young readers.
2: That's right, and it's available now. Uh, get one for your kids. It's it's. It looks great. Everyone at Macmillan was so wonderful to work yeah, with. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it makes a great Christmas gift or birthday gift, a stocking stuffer, mm-hmm. and it's called Stuff Kids Should Know by you and I and our buddy Nils Parker, who uh, helped us write this thing. Yes.
1: So where can you get it, Chuck?
2: You can get it everywhere. You know, our advice is always to seek out a local bookseller mm-hmm. and uh, support your local bookstores and, and get one there. They're all over the place at regular bookstores, kids' bookstores. Uh, but throw a rock and you're going to hit one of these books, probably.
1: <laughs> yeah, but if you hit it with a rock, you have to buy it. Store yes, polishing. Uh, well, that was a very good idea, Chuck. So, everybody, I hope if you go out and get our book, you enjoy it thoroughly and you can let us know what you think about it via email. You can send those emails to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio.